I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and then conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. This week in episode 34, we close out season two with a recap of all we've discussed. So another 16 books, well, 16 episodes in the books. And we, I think we want to start by saying thank you all listeners for, for joining us on the journey. Absolutely. And uh, make another plug. Uh, I mean, we try not to be annoying with this, but give us a review, you know, write us a review if you can give us, give us five stars on iTunes so that other people can find the podcast. And we'd love to hear your feedback in terms of what you think we're doing good and what you think we can improve on. And, you know, each book is different. And so there may be some unevenness in the level of interest and excitement for each podcast, but hopefully that keeps things fresh too that it's more interesting when you don't hear necessarily the same thing repeated every single episode and you know as we as we prepare for season three please contact us through facebook twitter or wherever and uh let us know if there's some book that you think is important to the history of conservatism conservative thought and we haven't read it yet it might already be on our list but it might not so please let us know we're always open to ideas yeah, absolutely. And we're putting together that list right now. I think there's still a lot of really good books left out there. So another season, another 15, 16 books should be fun. Mm-hmm. We'll give you the little preview. We're going to take a couple weeks off, a few weeks off after this episode, and then we'll be back at it. All right. So Kyle, what themes did you see in season two. And what this is what's interesting, I'll just say real quick as a preface that I worried about this a little bit thinking, well, we, are we going to more or less repeat the same episode as our season one recap? And I think, no, I mean, I think, I think mm-hmm. that, of course we've, we've seen some of the same themes as before, but when you read different books and somehow it seems to group together a little bit. Yeah. So what'd you see? Yeah. I was, I was kind of surprised at that too, because we didn't plan to change our focus in any way. It just happened that I, th- I think there were a lot of books this season that talked about the individual versus family as mm-hmm. like, yes. which is the, which is the, the basic unit of society that society should be organized around and that society should be trying to give freedom to give liberty to, and, you know, just encourage to, to exist. And, uh, you know, that's, um, we've read a lot more work this season with a, some of it with a sociological bent. I mean, with the Charles Murray book was, I think, I think one that really focused on this, talking about the decline of family, decline of faith and community and how that's happened in some ways across all social strata, but in some ways it's been worse on the working class and the poor and it, and it has certainly affected them worse, you know, whereas a lot of, uh, you know, as people turn away from marriage at some levels, you know, the, the sort of the thing that you usually use to start a family, you know, to, to set up your own family unit. And, you know, what's been the effect of that? You know, how does that, how does that change how 
society functions when you don't have these intact families. And I, I thought Murray made some great points about that, about how it, it kind of, the fact that the, the upper class and the upper middle class have no longer stressed the virtue of marriage or stressed the virtue of work or, mm-hmm. or faith. Yet a lot of them still do those things for themselves. Um, you know, I mean, you, you, if you think of middle-class people, you know, most of them get married usually before they have kids, sometimes after, but most of them, they follow that traditional path of life. Even if they don't think it's right for them to say to other people, this is the only way, this is what you should do. They still follow it and it helps them. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of thing that reduces poverty. You know, just having the two income or the two parent household, rather, whether it's two income or one income, having the mother and father in the house. We talked about studies besides Murray too, that, that show that this is, this is one of the best ways out of poverty. It's what best way to stability. And yet, you know, the, the same class that still engages in those old, old customs, uh, doesn't really feel like they should push them on anyone else. And, uh, the result is you're going to get this bifurcation of, of society and you get this, you know, they, they still call it a meritocracy and yet it's, it's, it's really a kind of self-perpetuating class control. I, th- I thought that one was one of the real eye openers of this season. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's such a fascinating paradox almost that I think we come in with these assumptions, at least I kind of do that. Well, those who are not getting married, those who, you know, actively pursuing like, let's say different lifestyles or whatever. Oh, it must be that, you know, upscale liberals who have the, you know, mm-hmm. the relativistic view of the world and, you know, you do you and I'll do me and everything is equally, you know, equally virtuous. But what's so fascinating about this, this data is it actually shows something different. And the upper classes, they are still following the traditional model. Just like you said, that's, they're not, they're not preaching, they're not preaching what they practice, right? but they actually are doing it. And it's marriage rates are actually falling among the working class, but not really among the upper class. And even more fascinating, the church attendance is falling among working class, but not necess- not, and it's still falling among upper class, but not nearly as steeply. And that's pretty amazing and runs pretty counterintuitive to, you know, I think our, our assumptions. I found the Murray book to be one of the most insightful um, books I've ever read. I, I, I think that even for listeners who have heard, you know, negative things about Murray and, you know, IQ research and these sort of things. He's, he lays the data out in such fascinating ways. And I've read several of his books and I just think that it's well worth reading. But yeah, I agree. I I think even if you think he emphasizes IQ too much, which I do, um, it's obviously still a factor and the, his whole thesis is not dependent on that one point either. I mean, it's, yeah, it's true whether that's the predominant factor in determining success or not. I mean, the, the data he, he presents is, is true either way. Mm-hmm. And we saw it in two other books. I mean, Dalai and Salam say, you know, basically like pick any indicator of success and, and positive outcomes. I mean, when you have two parent stable families, it's better for the kids. It's better for the parents. It's especially better for the, especially better for the kids, but it's also better for the men, you know, in their own life outcomes. And Brooke says, and I think you alluded to this, David Brooks, if you get married before having children, you graduate from high school and work full time, there's a 98% chance you will not live in poverty. 
and that's that's a pretty astounding stat and something that we I feel like we should stand up and say we should right? we should be hearing that every day. I mean, ninety eight percent is a fantastic number. I mean, yeah, that's that's a that's a that's not just a a correlation. It's clearly a causation. You know, there's there's those number that's not a coincidence and and it feels like we should really hear that constantly because here's something you can do it doesn't require the government it doesn't require taxes or or laws it's just just do these things of your own free will and better things will almost certainly happen to you 98 times mm-hmm. out of 100 it's going to work out that's i mean that's that's a great way to help people along to the american dream and i, I think part of the reason yeah. we're not Hearing it is kind of what um, Bloom talked about in the uh, closing of the American mind. It's just that the relativism that that grows in in the elite society, but it's also kind of trickling down to every everybody. You know, I mean, it's the thing to start out in universities, and then they do make their way to the rest of us. And it, so you get this get this feeling among people who are living right and who are succeeding because they're living right, but they still don't have that. Their, their lives are not structured around searching for the right idea, which is what I think Bloom mm-hmm. said we all should be doing is searching for virtue, searching for the right answer. And here are people who found the right answer and are practicing it in their lives, but they, they don't have that they still have this this relativism in the back of their mind that says, well, you know, it's right for me, but it might not be right for, you know, for everybody else. So maybe I shouldn't. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be preachy. You know, I, I, nobody wants, yeah, nobody wants to be the one who tells everyone how to live. But, you know, if it works this well, there's, there's, it should be proselytized a little bit. I mean, right. I mean, we're not, mm-hmm. it's not like you're telling people to, change churches or change political parties or do, you know, do something. It's a matter of conscience. Here it is. It's just like, here's how you organize your life and it can work and it can, and you, and it worked. I mean, I like being married. I think it's pretty great. (laughs) I think, I think most married people do. Not everyone. They're not all, they don't all work out, but yeah, it's that, um, the combination of, of the, the decline of these things that held up society. I mean, matched up with the relativism that Bloom points out, I think it it makes for this this mess that we're getting between mm-hmm. where the classes are diverging. And you know, we hear if you've been watching these democratic debates, well, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry for you. I've been watching them too; they're terrible. <laughs> but you hear a lot about, well, you know, the people aren't getting ahead, and the rich are keeping everything for themselves. It's, well, that's not all true, but to the extent a lot of it's true, it's because of how people live and how, yeah, how cho- yeah. the choices that we make affect that, you know, I mean, it, it's, if it's great to, if we have, if we reorganize our economy to have more jobs and better, better jobs, that's cool, but you still have to work them. And that's one of the things Murray talked about, you know, that the decline of industry as a value or industriousness as a value. And, you know, it's, it's great if we set up these social safety nets, but here there's a way to not even fall into it. You don't need them. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's so much there that I think we should be hearing more about. Yeah, completely agree. We, so we see this, the harm that's caused by tearing down these values. You know, you had, you know, classical Aristotelian view of the world where you, we were strive, you know, the 
humans strive towards virtue, strive towards doing well and good. And then sort of we overcome that with a strong individualist, more enlightened society and all that's, you know, there's, it's positive to make advances in science and everything like that, that we can master the, the elements. But when what we're saying is virtue is really up to the, the individual to decide, which you, you know, I tend kind of to agree with, mm-hmm. but then at the same time, like you actively tear down all of these good, positive traditions and virtues in society, and then basically practice them on your own. It's just really irritating to think that, you know, what you're doing is you're as leaders and in society, you know, people who, you know, are hopefully p- people that, uh, that others admire or, you know, are trying to strive to be kind of like, you know, successful in the same, in the same way. And you're spending your energy, like tearing down and destroying. And those, those folks who are, you know, in the working class and maybe don't have as many options, those media messages, you know, those, you know, societal messages, they start to sink in and, you know, it's okay for me to, you know, have kids and then just abandon the family and that kind of thing. Cause you know, everybody needs to do their own thing in their own way mm-hmm. and don't get married. Anyway, we just see the damage that it causes when you don't preach what you practice. Instead, you actively preach the other way. It's almost like a conspiracy to hoard all of the, the benefits of, of family and what your, you know, tradition and common sense sort of have provided us. It really felt like that when I was reading it. And I don't want to, I'm not a conspiratorial thinker, but it's, I said, you know, if, if somebody presented this as a conspiracy theory, well, there's evidence, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I don't think all of the, uh, the middle class got together and decided to do it, but it's, it, it feels like that because it, it mm-hmm. feels like you're, if you carry out that sort of dichotomy, what, what do you get? You get a permanent underclass who you can exploit for cheap labor. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, I, it's not a conspiracy, but it, it works as well as one, you know, because mm-hmm. it's what you, what, it's what's happening. And it, it's, it's frustrating. It's, it, it really is. Um, some of our authors here have made made a very strong defense of the family and argued for the centrality of the family and that mm-hmm. those are some of the readings that I really enjoyed and uh the Carlson reading it's a little bit off the beaten path maybe we haven't heard of him before but he and Kirk are basically saying the same thing like family is the natural source and core of any good in society you know the family has been the dominant economic pattern for over a millennium family is the nature universal and a natural, universal, and irreplaceable human community. And the degradation of the family just creates all these social ills, as we see from, you know, from Murray and from Brooks and Doubt That and Salam. And I I appreciate those those strong, you know, arguments in favor of, of maintaining family. I get that it's difficult in public policy to stand up and say, you guys, everybody should get married and politicians well some of them are divorced Mm -hmm. right some of them are actually not super attentive to their kids or something like that yeah (laughs) and you know you're calling out yourself in a lot of ways and to be in political life and to you know make declarations about how important the family is you know we've we've seen guys like santorum who are rick santorum a former senator from pennsylvania ran for president too and you know, whether you like him or you don't, he was obviously a very strong defender of family values, but by doing so, it put him on 
put a big bullseye on his face that everybody was going to look at his family. Well, well, your family did this, that, and you know, and there's always, yay, okay, there's always ways to point out and say we're not meeting the ideal. Yeah. Um, and it does make it difficult for politicians because, you know, maybe they grew up in a single parent household and they don't want to offend their mom or something like that. But even so, uh, it's just the data have come back and it's just so important that we say like, hey, look, not everyone, no, every, not every situation is going to work out. You know, there's everybody's trying their best and we're not going to say that someone's lesser than. No, right. Uh, just because of circumstances. But we are saying that, like, this is this is what we should strive for because it's good. It's positive. It's positive for you. It's positive for your kids. And good for society yeah i think i think moral messages always bump up against that reaction too is because you know somebody says we should be more moral in this way and the, the response is always well you are not perfect yourself you know and i, I think mm-hmm. for i know within christianity specifically that that is expected it's like yeah of course i'm not we're all flawed the world is broken we're you know we are a fallen society but yeah, you know yeah. um we strive to be better that's the point you know, and we know we're never going to achieve perfection, but we try to live up to higher ideals. But it, yeah, certainly in the political arena, you get that, you know, uh, yeah, if somebody preaches marriage and then God forbid his marriage falls apart, see, it's all fake. Don't listen to anybody, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. that's hard because some of them are, I mean, some of them are going to break down. That's because we're not perfect. You know, I mean, there are people who are going to make mistakes and behave badly, but and in within your own family, you're going to have teenagers who, regardless of how much you teach them, they're still going to have out of wedlock births when they're 16 or something it, like it that. And that, it, that isn't a repudiation of the plan, you know. No, all it is is just to say, "Hey, look, this is tough." It, yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody has fallen short of ideals at some point in this life. Every one of us, and you know, some of us have been able to get away with it, and some haven't. You know, it just depends how how badly you fall short and how bad the consequences turn out to be. But it's it's um yeah it's not the fact that the people telling you to aim to be more perfect are themselves imperfect is not i think in itself a refutation of the idea of improvement uh but sure it it sure comes across that way because it's easier in in media to point out a hypocrite or you know a, a failure of somebody than to than to accept that you know that we're all Mm-hmm. All just trying to get by. Mm-hmm. So, on a related note, uh, another theme that I really saw was sort of working class and versus kind of the meritocracy. And this is related, you know, to the family. But you know, Murray dived really deeply into this that the higher higher tech economy rewards cognitive ability. He tells the story to describe his, uh, the, what he calls the great college sorting system mm-hmm. and so forth. He tells a story about how he grew up in this town of Newton made in, sorry, Newton, Iowa, where the Maytag corporation had his, had his headquarters. And it's basically out in the middle of nowhere and how, you know, the whole town was, was kind of built around that, that, uh, one huge employer. And over time it just became harder and harder for Maytag to pull in executives once it became kind of a national search. And um, what happened to that community? Well, it starts to it starts to decay a little bit. And meanwhile, like the bigger cities, they just suck in and you know pull to their orbit all of these all of these companies. And while at the same time, the best and the brightest from Newton, Iowa, or you know from small town America, those who are doing well on the SAT or so forth, doing well in school, well, they 
jet off to college and then they join the assembly line for the college sorting system. And then they end up getting a job, not, not going back to Newton, you know, not going back to small town USA, but going to the cities and where the, you know, the better jobs are and the better opportunities are. And so this, this system has created a new aristocracy is kind of how uh, Brooks, you know, described it, a, a new cognitive age that produces a new aristocracy. And that aristocracy is based on merit, which feels a little more acceptable to us and comfortable in that, okay, well, at least, you know, she's doing super well that, you know, she's smart. So she just kind of deserves it versus just a family mm-hmm. lineage. But the, the tough part about that is it, it just pulls away all of the really talented people from a lot of parts of the country and where, you know, an old aristocracy, you'd have, you'd have, you know, families who would stick in the same place for generations uh, and kind of be the central load bearing beam for that community. We we're losing that and it's creating a new tiered system in America of, rather than calling it haves and have nots, it's sort of like those who are succeeding in the technology economy and those who are not. And and when, when and what happens to those areas that are left behind like that, like Newton, Iowa or other towns, as you get this sort of lack of belonging, you know, there was a system and now there isn't. And then, you know, people are sort of bouncing around there as individuals saying, you know, well, where, where's my place in all this? You know, that's, that's what, uh, my favorite book this season, I think was, uh, Francis Fukuyama's, uh, the end of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a lot of what he talked about was the search for belonging. And that's something that yeah. philosophers have been talking I mean, Hegel and, and even Marx was talking, talked about this, you know, Marx thought that communism was, the, was going to end up being the substitute for this, the, uh, the medieval system that we had outgrown in the industrial revolution uh, it didn't work out too well either you know uh they tried to replace one thing with something that turned out to be even worse and that that was no good but fukuyama looked looked at you know does liberal democracy do the best job of filling that gap and like what what is where we belong and what you know what how do we know our place in society how do we achieve for ourselves and and feel that that sense of belonging and it's sort of uh it, to me it came a lot back to the, like the uh the line you hear attributed to churchill that democracy is the worst system except for all the other ones mm-hmm. you know it's it's got its flaws and you know capitalism in the way it divides labor necessarily stratifies us in ways that are new i mean it's n- new over hundreds of years but still new to humanity you know and and like Carlson talked about, you know, the, the industrial revolution shook everything up and we're still figuring it out. We're still trying to find, well, what's the thing that's going to replace that old system that where people knew, I mean, to say know your place is a sort of negative way of putting it, but knew where you belong, knew you were, where you were comfortable, you know, knew your role in yeah, society. Where you fit in yeah. Where you yeah. fit, where you, where you feel like, yeah, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do with life. And the individualism that's been increasing since the industrial revolution and the enlightenment has done so much good. You know, it's done so much to let people out of those 
that caste system that essentially existed in the Middle Ages, where if you were a peasant, your your, your children would be peasants and your grandchildren would be peasants, and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's great mm-hmm. that we got away from that, but what replaces it is still, I I think, discomforting to everybody because you don't know where you belong. And it, it's great because it means you can make your own way, but then what if you don't? What, what if the way you make turns out to be disastrous? You don't have the old structures to fall back on. I, I, I thought mm-hmm. Fukuyama's discussion of that was really interesting. Um, it did show how a liberal democracy can replace that old drive for greatness and drive for belonging with sort of a, the structure of reason around also desire and, and a, sort of a managed, managed success within society. Um, mm-hmm. It was an interesting way of putting it. And if it, it's, it's not something I'd thought much about. So reading it, I, of all the books this season, that was, I think the one that that one and Murray both made me think of new avenues of, of political thought. I hadn't really gotten down before. Yeah, I agree. Those those two and and this and the soul mm-hmm. book that I think we'll talk about in a minute. Th- those are the three that really stood out to me as the best. But back to your back to your other point, we see there's some tensions in conservatism along these lines, though, because on the one hand, the, the pulling apart of community and sort of the race to greater and more radical individualism. We also had a reading this season, Ayn Rand who basically is a cheerleader for that style of, you know, she says progress can only come out of the surplus from men with greater ability. Of course, we also got a little bit of this from Fukuyama. He's talking about, um, you know, Nietzsche's argument about last men versus the overmen. On the one hand, I think in conservatism, we want, you know, enough individualism and a free market in order for those who are ambitious to really, you know, get ahead and move ahead. And so on the one hand, the meritocracy I personally am a huge cheerleader for it, also, as well as Rand. While at the same time, also, we see kind of the tension, see some of the, sort of the setbacks, like, okay, but we also need to deal with this, that it's, it's actually having some collateral damage for particularly rural communities, but really a lot of communities that are just not becoming the hub and for people who maybe either don't have access to, you know, more education and, and training or... I think even the greater problem is those who are just not well suited to it. Uh, you know, what, what's going to happen? Are we going to leave them behind? And I think that's a real tension because on the one hand, support the meritocracy, support people with ambition, getting ahead and striving. I think it's good for them, but it's also good for society. Again, I think that these companies that are built from scratch, like Amazon, I think that creates a lot of benefit for for humanity and and you know it's good for us on the other hand it how has that affected kind of the local mom pa shops and you know walmart and all um, conglomerate or you know larger companies and so there is there is something that's left that uh, we also need to take up and i think that this season we read books on both sides of that maybe in the first season we read even more on the side of ayn rand you know the uh, Milton Friedman's and Hayek and those sorts. And maybe this time it just so happened that we read more on the working class side with Murray and Brooks and doubt that Salam. And I think that this season is really highlighted. Yeah. There's some tension there. There's, there's some push and pull that, uh, that we need to figure out and both sides of it is actually conservative probably, 
but we got to kind of deal with both. Yeah. And I think that's one of the tensions always in figuring out what is conservatism is a lot of the answers are not all one thing or all the other, you know, and like the, the various utopian systems that have risen up, you know, whether it's a theocracy or a, or communism or fascism, they, they have no problem telling their followers, look, uh, in this question between A and B, the answer is 100% A and 0% B. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. And conservatives never say that because it, it maybe it's our temperament or maybe it's our just the way we look at history. Well, look, I mean, individualism is extremely important. I mean, individ, rights are held by individuals. That's That's how it works. That's how nature works. But it can't be all that. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to also be this family, this community, you know, that there has to be this uh, a unit bigger than the self. It's a question. Yeah. We're always trying to figure out which, you know, which is more, which, you know, how to balance those two factors. Cause they do go against each other. I mean, the, the sort of, the sort of family that in Carlson's book is the really old school family, the patriarchal in the good and bad sense of that word mm-hmm. um family where everything's done as a unit and that is not coming back i don't think because we live in a country where we have individual rights and where some somebody's going to grow up and say you know i don't want what this family wants i'm going to move to a different city and do my own thing yeah right i don't want to be a farmer <laughs> yeah and that's it has to be that way because we we can't all do what our fathers and mothers did some of us don't want to some of us aren't really cut out for that work, whatever that work happens to be. So there has to be this tension. And I, I don't know if there's an, I don't know if there's a way to put it down in words of when is too much on one side and the other. It's just, um, it's a balancing act that probably has to go on forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, uh, so on a related note, you, you were highlighting kind of the different views of the left versus right. And I think I found that to be a theme this season as well. I've just kind of, well, I'll just label the right versus left perspectives on the world. I think we really saw this in Seoul and Fukuyama, especially, and also in the Federalist Papers. But Thomas Seoul book, you know, I honestly didn't know much about Seoul before. And man, I thought it was just so insightful talking about the unconstrained versus constrained vision. The constrained vision being an understanding that human nature has limits and it limits the options of what, what you can do as a government or as a society and trade-offs are required. You know, the constrained vision, he says, seeks the special causes of peace, wealth, and law-abiding society because it puts little faith in deliberately designed social uh, processes versus the unconstrained vision, which is, you know, more related to the left, whereas a moral vision of human intentions you know, moral improvement has no fixed limit. They see all human problems as entirely solvable. Every social issue is an engineering problem. You know, as you guys are sick of hearing me saying like, you know, turn this dial and pull this lever a little. And the constrained vision, the Federalist Papers, they're like, no, I mean, human con- human nature has been has remained constant over centuries. And you know, Hamilton or sorry, Madison says, you know, the causes of faction are sown into the nature of man, and we're not going to be able to do anything about that. It, it isn't a matter of a tabula rasa, a blank slate. And all we need to do is set up the 
constructs in society such that they will behave in a certain way. Maybe that can help on the margins, but people are still going to be people and there is a human nature and it carries across. And I just found this to be super insightful. I think our tendency to, and you've said this in a, in a previous episode, it's our tendency to sort of look at the other side and say, oh, they're evil or they have bad mm-hmm. intent. You know, they're, what they're really getting at is something else because they're trying to, over, and some, some, some of those elements are certainly present, but it's really helpful, I think, for any of us to, to kind of imagine that, well, what if you, your thinking and your kind of orientation of the world was just completely different than what it currently is? Would that change how you approach things? Well, of course it would. And it also changes like, okay, they're never going to go along with this argument because, you know, they dismiss it out of hand, you know, and that's not their concern. In fact, in fact, they, they assume to start with that it's not, you know, a governmental, a constitutional government of laws that we need. It's just good people with good intentions, like making decisions. And that's me and my friends and we can do it and we can overcome, you know? (laughs) I think everybody left and right should read soul because it, it, he does a good job of explaining the two sides in a way that, you know, when we're screaming past each other and butting heads with each other, there is, it is so easy to fall into the idea that the other side is just, they're corrupt or they're, they have secret agendas or they're, they're evil. Like you, like you said, and it's sometimes, but I think usually they, they want, they want the good too. They want, they want success for the country and for individuals. They just see it really differently. And, and soul ha- helped me to wrap my head around some of what had to that point seemed like nonsense from the left. And it still feels like nonsense, but now I understand where it comes from. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah. it helps you at least talk to somebody who disagrees with you. And, and the, the point that they're not going to agree on some points is I think, I think enlightening. Cause it's, I mean, that's also shows what side of the aisle soul is on. He's, mm-hmm. he has the constrained vision because he's saying, well, look, these people, that's their vision. This is our, you know, this is the other vision. They're not going to get together. Whereas I think if he were of the unconstrained mind he'd say here's how we convince them you know and yeah <laughs> he knows people are different and they have different views on on how things are going to work out and what we should be doing and, and how to do it um and seeing all that it makes it made me really appreciate when we did read the federalist papers how madison saw that back then mm-hmm. yeah. you know, when a lot of people weren't seeing that and i think that was um I mean, I think David Hume was writing about that, but most people were, I, I think it was probably more common to say that, well, we just need to make better men. That's how you get mm-hmm. better government. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it was a, a critical insight at, at the exact right time for this nation that we had people like Hamilton and Madison saying, that's not going to work. And if they hadn't said that, if they had built it around the opposite view, how long would the country have lasted? know how long before we got a bad man in charge a a dictator yeah i mean i I think we kind of have that counterexample in the french revolution yeah that's true the american revolution was a very constrained vision and the french revolution was a very unconstrained vision it just fell apart yeah almost instantly you know they as soon as they got rid of the king they were at each other's throats and and literally at each other's throats so and because each thought he was so right that you know, he didn't need to be constrained. He didn't, well, this is, this is justice. I have to do it. It doesn't matter if you break some eggs, 
cut off some heads. Mm-hmm. And we never had that here, thankfully. I think because mm-hmm. we were founded around Madison's vision of man is flawed, so we'll make a government that turns his flaws against the, the other branch's flaws, and thereby they play off each other, it preserves liberty, and people can can still you know you can you can disagree and, and still survive as a country mm-hmm. and, and fukuyama had deep fascinating insights along these lines as well he argues that history is the story of uh, human search for recognition and recognition takes the form of being recognized in, in your society but also being recognized in your family and you know basically like you're noticed and you fit and this is kind of where you belong. And you talked about this already, but as he evaluates whether the world has reached the end of history and you should listeners, if you haven't listened to the Fukuyama episode, you definitely should go back and listen to those, particularly uh, the second episode of the two. It's very good. I th- very good reading, I think. Um, but as humans seek, uh, um, you know, recognition and place in society, he says, he argues, um, in depth that the left would say that universal recognition in liberal democracy, which is sort of like, you know, equal representation and that sort of thing. And, e- you know, equal equality in that sort of leftist sense that, that what makes equality complete is if everyone's society also has economic equality and the outcomes are the same and equal or pretty close to it. And so he would say that the march of history and, world progress like his question is whether liberal democracy really is the end point is that the best that we can do and and the left would argue that it's it's not it's still incomplete because capitalism still creates economic inequality and but on the other side on the right they would say well that sort of equal sort of universal recognition is problematic because people are inherently unequal Mm. you know and soul gets into this and murray shows obviously through his data that this is obviously true. I mean, on the one hand, we we want everyone to sort of have all the choices available to them to live their lives the way they want. But as that happens, we're also going to see some unequal outcomes because people are just better at stuff than other people. And, uh, you know, he, he goes into depth about, you know, Nietzsche's argument about how to give satisfaction to those who are ambitious in society. And, those of us with this, you know, soul constrained vision and kind of like believe that in order to have real progress, you actually have to have ambitious people. You can't flatten, you can't level, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an argument for, well, we have to accept the fact that we're going to have some level of inequality in, in our society, economic inequality and otherwise, you know, um, mental health inequality that's just how it's going to be and in order for us to progress we have to have people who are ambitious who want to get ahead who want to hustle there's going to be inequality in work ethic and you know that's that's actually good because we without those people well we're just going to kind of stagnate and you know stay in the stone age and but on the other hand on the left they're like no that we've we've already reached a point that's fine enough you know it's good enough what we need now is to make sure that all the outcomes are the same and uh those are huge tensions. And I mean, I think it's really insightful the way that, you know, Fukuyama and soul just really kind of open up the psychological differences, the orientation of left and right and how that should really kind of inform our, 
you know, when we're making arguments or trying to persuade the public on to, to go with different policies. Yeah. I was glad to get into both of those this season and the, some of the things we read in season one hinted at that. I think Hayek addresses them peripherally, but uh, yeah, the, the Fukuyama and soul have such a deep dive into that human nature and, and what it means. It's uh, yeah. Terribly insightful. Great stuff. So we're getting towards the end here, but there is one other theme and we, we've actually covered this a little bit already, but another thing that I found, which is kind of like the, classical focus on values versus the current uh, relativism of, of today. We've talked a lot about relativism, but just to give a little more, I mean, Fukuyama will say that he says morality involves the distinction between better and worse, good and bad, which seems to violate the democratic principle of tolerance. <laughs> but modern education tends towards this relativism, which is based, he calls uh, just mediocrity because we're no longer identifying what's better and what's worse and what's good and what's bad. And from Leo Strauss, which is probably one of our deepest thinkers, first book we read of the season, you know, he argues that, you know, relativism holds that you can't have any knowledge of ultimate principles. There's just no metaphysical truth. And because of that, you know, humans have no ability to discern right versus wrong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he has this critique of social science. You know, social science has a lot of positives, like helps us understand things. I mean, Murray's social science is super valuable. But with this relativistic posture, like social, he says social science gives advice with equal competence to tyrants as well as to, I mean, how can you step back and say that something as plain as, let's say, a Holocaust is wrong? if everything is relative. Yeah. And I think that's a real problem. And, and we, we caught that in a few of our thinkers, Bloom, Strauss, Fukuyama. Yeah. That's an important distinction um, between, between right and left. I think it, across conservatism, there is this idea that something is right and something is wrong. And, it, and it's okay to say that and it's actually good to say that. So maybe that, mm-hmm. that is one sort of uniting theme. I think, I don't think we've read a relativist conservative, maybe, um, Maybe <laughs> Andrew right. Sullivan in a way, but even he, he's more just wishy-washy than relativist. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, yeah, I think that, that, that's one uniting principle at least. And so then the focus of Alan Bloom's book is really to say that this new orientation of, of uh, relative cultural relativism, what he calls like um, creating one's own lifestyle or openness mm-hmm was kind of what it was tagged as before this is being taught in the academy this has been being taught in colleges and schools and instead of teaching values and virtues you know like uh, that humans should seek for excellence and and be industrious and you know work hard and just these core values that are you know made in america 1950s style values of you know work hard and do your best and things will work out no, instead we're saying what we need to do is tear down the patriarchy. What we need to do is tear down rest control from the dominant mm-hmm. majority. And it's just so divisive and just so destructive. And I, and I think for my own kids later when they, when they go to college, it's kind of like, I never want to hide them from ideas. I want to expose them to all ideas, but, but it just it irks me that they're just going to you know go to school and just get a, a steady dose of, 
tear down, tear down, tear down instead of, you know, building these values that, that Murray points to and industriousness and, and, uh, valuing your family and, and having some, some feeling some ownership for your community and, and, uh, with some responsibility that's, that's yours and have real accountability in society. I mean, I bet a lot of these values are being taught in the, the Confucius societies in China. And, mm-hmm. and that's a good point. But for us, you know, our, our focus is on tearing down or their focus is on sort of like working together and doing well. And, uh, I just, that's damaging. And, and to your point, like there, there really is no conservative fit for, you know, relativistic, you know, open to tear down the institutions of society instead of like, you know, tradi- tradition is, has value not just for its own sake but because it's good for all of us you know, I, these these are values for a reason yeah and I, th- I think maybe the chinese experience kind of informs ours too because they did go through a period of tearing down absolutely everything in society in their, in yeah, their cultural revolution point, yeah, yeah, and yeah great leap forward and all great these point. things um now as they come out of it i mean look at what they're doing they're they're not embracing free market capitalism but they're embracing a kind of command and control capitalism. And, you know, in terms of people being married and having children, I think that their government still promotes the traditional way of doing that, even though they're, they're radical socialist in other ways. So maybe, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that soil light is the end of the tunnel for us as we've torn down so much. I think maybe, maybe some of the, the generation Z youths are going to be able to look around and say, well, look, this works and this doesn't. I mean, maybe, you know, as they're hearing for 12 years of school or, or 16 years of school or however long that, oh, you know, who can say no right, no wrong, you know, what's okay for you. I mean, part of it is, I, I mean, I, I found for me being, being preached at in that way by teachers just made me think the opposite because that's the kind of <laughs> kid I was. But I mean, maybe that's, that's, that's the thing is I hear this all the time in school and, you know, just as when you hear anything in school, it's not exactly right some people are going to say I, I don't totally buy that so maybe there's maybe there's hope for for the uh for the young kids coming up now although i i i agree with you the the idea of sending them off to to college where they're going to get this uh straight relative is important their ears for four years is a scary concept you got to hope that you're whatever you've done in the first 18 years to prepare them is enough yeah right okay so that's it. That ends season two. That's our recap. Um, hope you enjoyed some of these episodes. I we really enjoyed a lot of these books. So, like I said at the, at the outset, we plan to take a few weeks off to recharge the batteries. Again, please give us your feedback. You can do it on Facebook. You can do it on Twitter. Um, be great if you could give us some feedback, especially if it's good, hmm. on uh, iTunes and to help others find the podcast. So we'll be back in a few weeks with another slate of interesting books for season three. Thank you for listening. See you later.